New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Our guest today, Robin Posen, has the energy of a fierce mother bear when it comes to lovingly mothering ourselves. She says, as we each work to develop and expand the practice of becoming loving mothers to ourselves, we are part of a revolution in consciousness. We are freeing ourselves from the countless undermining torments that our past and our culture can visit upon our impressionable selves. Today we'll be exploring how we may become more consistently gentle, more kind, and more tender with ourselves in this mad-paced world with our guest, Dr. Robin Posen. Dr. Robin Posen is a licensed clinical psychologist who works in person or on the phone She's a therapist, coach, and mentor, specializing in transforming the inner critic into an empowering ally and developing a fiercely protective inner caregiver as we learn to reparent our wounded self. She is a developer of Rememberings and Celebrations cards, which are loving reminders of the Great Mother's voice, and the author of Go Only As Fast As Your Slowest, heart feels safe to go, tales to kindle compassion and gentleness for our exhausted selves. Robin lives in Ojai, California. Join us for the next hour as we explore how we may become our own fiercely protective inner caregiver with our guest, Dr. Robin Posen. I'm Justine Bullis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Robin, Welcome. Thank you, Justine. I'm thrilled to be here. Oh, I'm just so glad that you could be with us. I'm honored to have you. Robin, one of the phrases you use in your book over and over again is the little one inside. So tell us, what do you mean, the little one inside? Well, I think that all of us have many little selves inside, and usually those are the parts of us that were abandoned abused, neglected, or just poorly treated. And they don't go away. They live inside of us. And often what happens is we're just as neglectful and as abandoning of those parts of ourselves as our original caregivers were. And so for me, the the work is really about opening almost like a council table to all those 
unfinished parts so that we can relate to them and help them heal from the damage that was done to them. Robin, I know that you've really worked for decades now on this. You, you really have delved into it. But I'd love for you to share a little bit of your growing up. Can you share with us what was that like for you? What, where, where did that damage first start that you recognize in yourself? Well, I think the thing to say first about my mother is that had she been born when I was born, she probably could have made the choice not to have children. She shouldn't have had them. And so she was a very damaged and damaging person. And for some reason with me, as opposed to with my younger sister, she got into competitiveness. So she was, um, on the one hand, always giving me the message that I was to carry forth and do the things that she had been stopped from doing in the world. But then as soon as I would bring home some accomplishments, she would tear them down. So that, you know, that it was kind of that she could stay in the merge with me and get the, the uh, goodies, but then she'd slip out of the merge and really feel murderously angry at me for being able to do what she hadn't. Um, had the opportunity to do. So my life was always about trying to get her to be caring and to feel satisfied with me. So I was um, a, what I call a hyperachiever all my life, always looking for what was the thing that I could do that would open that would be like the key to the kingdom and that would open her love as if I believed that somehow there was some way I could be that would open her love. And you would always be on guard, too, in some way, wouldn't you? Absolutely. It was, she was so endlessly unpredictable that I could come home from school one day and do something that would not raise the needle on her radar at all and another day I could come in and she would be absolutely on me immediately so I am it's a it's a skill that has become part of my life that I can notice like a half a degree of shift in somebody's emotional state because I had to be vigilant in that way to get out of the way of her rage so it was like a hyper vigilance absolutely and I think we start to internalize this sort of thing, don't we? I mean, it's not like once your mother is out of your life, it's not like she's gone. Can you talk about that? Well, it's really true. You know, my mother died on, on Valentine's Day when I was 30. And I've always said it was the best Valentine's present I ever got, that I didn't have to deal with her on the outside. I only had to deal with the part of her that got internalized that I've called always the hatchet lady who was always ready to slash whatever I did. You know, anything, any mistake, any misstep, I would be just completely inundated with the, the same kind of rage and criticism and undercutting that my mother had done for the first 30 years of my life. I know that you've written about uh, in 1973, which is just phenomenal, how you changed your complete outer life. I, I just find that 
that kind of letting go phenomenal. It's so surprising. So few of us can do that. So talk about that moment in your life. You were on the East Coast and when you left the East Coast. I had a full-time private practice that was unusual for a woman at that point that I had half men and half women, a lot of writers and artists and actors. And I really loved the work, but I started with this horrible backache that kept me either lying down while my client sat or else I'd have to walk around the room. And it didn't occur to me then, what I know now, is that my body was really talking to me. So I would just get up earlier and earlier and, you know, soak in the hot in the bath hot baths and do yoga and whatever I could to try to stretch my back. And then one morning I woke up and there was a voice in my head that said, if you don't get someplace where it's green, you're going to die. And that I listened to. It was such a compelling voice. I had had it only one other time in my conscious life. And that was when the summer I got my period when I noticed that I was bleeding, this voice in my head said, don't worry, you won't have to have children. Wow. So I listened to the voice, and I started to really unravel my life, you know, to close up my practice, to take my marriage in hiatus. I was relating to a woman at the time as well, because we had an open marriage. And it just felt like, I had to go. I didn't understand it. I didn't know where I had to go, except that I knew I had to drive west and get to the coast. And, you know, people say how courageous it was. It wasn't a matter of courage. I really felt like there was some absolutely irresistible force in me moving me out of my life that I had been in this endless loop of trying to do more and more. I mean, I cooked everything from scratch, so did my feminist husband. I crocheted all my own clothing. I did my, you know, had my own practice. I was part of a collective that started the first New York feminist psychotherapy referral service. I baked all the the cakes and pastries for all the coffee hours that we had in this collective to bring people in and interview. I mean, there was just, there was nothing I wasn't, I also bicycled around Central Park three days a week on my own and on the weekend with my husband. I mean, it was unbelievable. I would read while I was walking downtown from 86th to 59th Street to go shopping. I would stand online in banks and crochet. I mean, I was a human doing. And it became clear to me that there was no more more I could do, that I really had to stop. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm kind of looking around and saying, yes, I understand completely. I, I feel someone in that same position right now myself. But you listened to the voice and you moved out of your life completely, your roots, your left your family, your profession, got got a little van. I, I love the description of your van. Say something about oh, your van. I, I went to Westchester and I bought a Dodge Tradesman 200 van stripped. It's the kind of thing that people bought for businesses. And then I slowly turned it into 
a bed sitting room with the salvage of my last life. I had a, a thick plywood thing across the wheel wells in the back that had a mattress on and quilts. I, I didn't know about sleeping bags yet. And then I didn't, I didn't uh, put insulation in because I hung my clothes from the rails and then tucked them into the lower rail. I didn't get a chemical toilet. What I had was a snack. It was like a snack table, but it was a toilet seat that you would then put a plastic bag in, and then you could pee and poop in the bag, and then you had to find places to deposit the the (laughs) bag. I had a a small plastic bowl that I could do a full body wash and two cups of water. I started out with an alcohol burner that had been like a casserole warmer, and that's what I cooked on with uh, like denatured alcohol. Uh-huh. I had a curtain rod and a, a, one of those spring rods across behind the driver's seat and one across the back window, and then I had permanently tucked some in the two side windows, and they were on cafe hooks so that I, they could slide and open. And then under the bed, I had boxes of clothes and whatever stuff from my last life I was taking. And I had a, a picnic table, one of those aluminum four by two, four or six by two or something, lashed to the uprights of the van and had little cupboards on the top of it. Oh, my. So there you had your little home with you that you had made this womb-like home. I'm here with Dr. Robin Posen, and she's the author of Go Only As Fast As Your Slowest Part Feels Safe to Go. And if you'd like to be in touch with her and know about her blog and her work, you can go to her website, forthelittleonesinside.com, or Compassionate Inc., I-N-K, Compassionate Inc., Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Dr. Robin Posen, and she's a licensed clinical psychologist and the author of Go Only As Fast As Your Slowest Part Feels Safe to Go. And uh, so, Robin, we're talking about you're moving across the country with your home, like a turtle, your home on your back and in this womb-like home that you have. And and you've left your profession behind. This is 1973. These are in the 70s. And I was so impressed that when you did need money, though, you would take whatever job. I mean, if it was a waitress, I mean, you 
you know, often we think, oh, well, I'm a doctor of psychology and I should, you know, be paid, so forth and so on. But you just did whatever it took. Can you say something about that? Well, I didn't, it wasn't because I needed money because when I left my life, I had never been a consumer and I had a bank down in, downstairs in the very apartment house I lived in. So I was always putting money away without understanding but it was like some, that same voice that sent me off had had me sending myself off with a, the, what I called the legacy of my last life. But periodically, what I would do is try to explore what else I could do, because at that point, I was convinced I could never do therapy again, that it was just, it just wore me out so much. So... When I landed in Santa Barbara for a while, I baked in an organic bakery. I had to get up out of the van and get ready and be at the bakery at 5 o'clock in the morning. I'd leave the van down by the beach, and I'd bicycle uptown to the, the bakery. I did that, and then when I was driving around the California, I would do a lot of crocheting. I mean, I still, I had to stay some degree of busy. So there were things I did, like I crocheted hats and ski sweaters and bikinis. And then I joined a couple of women in a, one of the units of a, one of those 1970s marketplaces. So I shop sat and sold stuff that I made. And then later on, when I actually did need money, I joined a woman who had a contract cleaning service and was her only employee, and I cleaned houses with her, and actually I got her to start cleaning clean houses instead of cleaning the kind of filthy houses that she was cleaning. So it was just clear to me that it didn't matter what, I wasn't what I did. That really, walking out on my life, and it was really... Um, it was a hard time, aside from, you know, what you were talking about, about un- getting rid of stuff. It was, here I had a really successful practice. I was in the upper 2% of women earning salaries. And it was the, you know, that was the feminist revolution. And it was like, how could you leave when you could stay and mentor other women? And I just knew I listened to the voice, and it said I would die if I continued the life as it was. Now, that's the message that over and over in your book you really give to the rest of us. Here we're in, now we're in the 21st century, and and but there still is a great need for us to listen to ourselves. How may we in this madcap world, as I've mentioned in the introduction, how can we stop long enough to hear that voice and the cacophony of everything coming at us? Well, one of the things that I suggest to people is, you know, everybody's got a watch or something that that's digital in their life or the computer or their iPhone that they can set to have an alarm go off as a reminder. Um, what I suggest as a starter is just have the thing ring at a certain time once an hour. And for that ring, stop, take a couple of deep breaths, and just scan. 
And now for a long time, you'll do that and there'll be nothing because all these parts of you you've been ignoring are not going to trust that you really mean to listen to them. So it's important to just do it as a habit. And if once an hour is too much, make it once every two or three hours. It's the My message is always to bite off a really small bit that you can absolutely keep to rather than taking a large saying you're going to do this every day on and on and on and then not doing it because those parts of you that have been abandoned and neglected have managed without your attention all of these years and you know with less and less attention as life gets busier and busier but breaking a promise to them is not okay so it's better to say you know maybe five minutes every two or three hours I I retract my five minutes every hour. So, Robin, you mentioned something about stop and scan. So what do you mean by scan? What does that mean? Well, I guess there's another another piece to this, that what I suggest people do in order to begin to make an opening for these parts that may have something to say to you is a little more formal than what I've just said. And it's really important to me that people not take this as a an ironclad recipe. I have to use something concrete in order to communicate. But I suggest that people make an altar or a private space somewhere in their life that they can, and if they, if they can't stay up all the time to think about doing it in a shoebox that they can close, but to look through albums of themselves as a child and see which pictures they look at, for some reason, grab them and pull a few of those out. So you have some pictures of you as a child. I suggest having a candle um, that you light, maybe some incense or sage, or just washing your hands, something to demark the difference between ordinary reality and this sacred time to be available to the parts of you that are not usually attended to. And then that you come, I often suggest it's a good idea to have art materials like big fat Crayola marking pens that you can hold in your non-dominant hand, the hand that doesn't have any rules. And that you just show up, like wash your hands, light the candle, light the incense, and sit and in I always suggest it's important to start apologizing to these parts of yourself that you have really not paid any attention so to. So can you give us an example? Like, like, you know, like, like an apology you might make to yourself? I'd say, you know, I'm really sorry that I've been as mean or as neglectful of you as our mother was. And... I know that I'm going to be stumbling and bumbling, and I don't exactly know how to do this right, but I really want to get to know you. I really want to get to incorporate you and see if we can together make life easier for you. And I know you won't trust me for a while, so I'm just going to show up here, and you can talk to me in my heart. You can use the Crayola markers and the big pads and write or draw you know, whatever it is that I need to hear from you today. And Robin, when you when when that little one inside or that voice inside or that part of us inside starts to respond, 
what is it? I mean, there's some power in that. There's something something that's transforming about that, that that brings some gift to us. Can you talk about the gift that that little one inside or that unheard voice inside has to bring to us? What is your experience of that? Well, that's the part that hasn't been distorted by the culture we live in, that hasn't been programmed, because we all are from the very earliest days, we're on a track you know, about what's allowed and what's not allowed. So usually the earliest parts are the ones that are still connected to their feelings. And even though we haven't heard them, and I think, you know, the the more we get into being plugged in and, you know, always busy with our computers and our smartphones and our iPads and things that we move further and further away from that feeling, uh, that natural belly connection to what's going on, you know, that that part of us has the capacity to know immediately what's okay, where it's okay for us to be and where it's not okay, and who it's okay to be around and who it's not okay to be around. And we don't listen to that most of the time at great peril, I think, to ourselves, that there's a a sort of organismic consciousness that that part has that if we can connect with, we can begin to make much better choices in our life as we're trying to take care of that part and listen to her or his reality. So feelings, getting in touch with that, those feelings not on a surface way, but really deep, uh, it, it provides a kind of guide for us. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. I think that that anchors us in a kind of reality that's, that doesn't get distorted. And when you say distorted, is that because culture just puts a lot of pressure on us to do a lot of things, not the least of which is to, to spend a lot of time nurturing others? Exactly. So can you say something about that? Well, the programming for women starts really early, and it is about what you can do for other people and that you have always to be alert and sensitive to what others need. And I think what happens often is that the way that we nurture ourselves is through doing it by proxy. That is, we nurture somebody else. That well, Let me back up a little bit. Whatever is abandoned and neglected and unheard inside of you, when it sees a parallel in somebody outside, I used to say that anybody, anybody's needy little kid could grab me by the collar immediately and I would go into paroxysms of nurturing and trying to fix and heal. And that, you mean that other person? And the other person, yes. but that little part of me would sort of jump into the other person. And then I'd get furious at the other person if they didn't take what I gave them and do something <laughs> that I thought I would do if somebody gave that yeah. to me. And so we're all on that track. Um, certainly women. I'm not so sure how intense that is for men. But it's so compelling, you know, that it's the, the word that's thrown is selfish that if you stop 
to take care of yourself. I always tell the people I work with what I learned, which is when somebody says you're being selfish, the translation is you're either not doing what they want you to do or you are doing something that they don't want you to do. That's what selfish is used for. It's a stopper. It's a stopper, yes. And I'm I'm thinking if we are really doing that, we're jumping outside ourselves, uh, there's no one really taking care of us in Absolutely. turn. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm here with Dr. Robin Posen. She's the author of Go Only, As Fast As Your Slowest Part Feels Safe to Go. The subtitle is Tales to Kindle Gentleness and Compassion for Our Exhausted Selves. And if you'd like to know more about her work, uh, you can go to her website for the little ones inside Dot com for the little ones inside.com or go to compassionateink.com. That's compassionateink.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Robin Posen, and by the way, she spells her name R-O-B-Y-N, and Posen is P as in Peter, O-S-I-N, Robin Posen. And uh, Robin, the title of your book, Go as Fast as Your Slowest Part Feels Safe to Go. Great. You know, it really kind of describes the book, not kind of, it is a very descriptive of the book. Uh, and I want to know, like, if we really slow ourselves down and we really do that scan and, and take time to listen to that those unheard voices inside, and we're think we're going slow and following their direction. How do we know the difference between going slow? And procrastination. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I redefined the word procrastination, and it's in line with everything we're talking about, that procrastination is when you're taking as much time as you need to get where you need to go. And when you're not doing something and you think you're procrastinating, it's either the wrong thing to be doing or the wrong time to be doing it, that you can trust that if you don't badger and criticize yourself for not moving into things fast enough or fully enough, that you will get where you need to go, that it's not okay to beat yourself up about it. So there's a bit of trust there that you really are doing exactly what you need to do and not to beat yourself up, as you say. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing that acculturation robs us of, is that if we listen to what feels right, we will be doing what's right for us. 
but we have this overlay of what we should be doing, what our partner, what our work, what our society, what our group of friends want us to do. So we're constantly being drawn off. And the truth is, if you do what you need to do for you, then you have overflow to give and share. But you're not doing it from a place of, you know, just doing what's asked of you without being there for yourself. So you're fully present with it and with your full self, as you say. Um, I want to disclose to our listeners that, Robin, you and I were part of my original women's group. I mean, I had never been part of a, a, a circle before until I met you and some other women, and most of us didn't even know each other, and we kind of stuck ourselves on a houseboat in <laughs> Lake Shasta for a week, and uh, we were just there together to figure it out. And um, one of the things that happened for me, a lesson that you gave me in that first encounter, well, there are several lessons, but the one one of the lessons that I want to mention was one night when we were trying to make a decision about something as a group. And, you know, I I thought, okay, well, what we're coming to, that feels okay. It's not quite right for me, but I'll I'll let it go because it's it's pretty good. It's a pretty good decision and it's a pretty good compromise. And suddenly, Robin, you said, well, I don't want to do it that way. I want to do it my way. And we all looked around at you like, oh, how could she possibly say this? And like you say, the most selfish, self-centered woman I think I've ever been with. And then you paused and then you said, and I know that every woman here can have it their way as well. And that idea just never occurred to us. It's like you expanded our landscape of vision enormously. So I'd love to have you talk about that because it's so counterintuitive in these times. Well, I, I, but I, I remember that moment and I remember saying, I want 100% of what I want and I want everybody else to also have 100% of what they want. And um, it was a stunning moment for me because I was in that circle. It was my first circle too. It was the first time I was trying out in a context of others, the work that I had been doing with myself. And uh, I am firmly opposed to compromise. I think compromise really dilutes what's happening for both people, that neither person then gets what they want, what they want. And I have this really deep conviction, and I've watched it play out, that if we stay with 100% of what we want, both of us, that is, you don't already pre-negotiate um, compromise, that if we're willing to sit with the discomfort on the level of um, reality that we've defined our 100%, that if we can sit with that intense discomfort and keep looking for what's the essence if we let go of the descriptors, what's the essence of what we really want? That it is possible, if you're engaged with each other emotionally, to get to a place that redefines the thing that you're trying to make work to something that you can both get 
Now, in our society, one of the uh, pressures that we have is expediency and efficiency. So what you're talking about is neither expedient nor efficient, It, but you're saying it is effective in the long run. So it may take longer. Absolutely. You know, that's the, the whole thing about living in a culture in which the sacred feminine is not valued because the feminine is about process and emotional investment and and being able to stay tuned to all the levels of our experience rather than just expediency. So it, it's really uh, an act of radical guerrilla theater to insist that you do this. I don't know how it would work in some environments. Right. We, we can't guarantee all environments. But the more of us who try it and practice it, the more feedback we get in, in being more skillful at letting it unfold. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I, I always go back to the hundredth monkey. The more of us that do this in more and more places in our life, the more we are in some way affecting the morphogenetic field. Yes. Yes, may it be so. I want to talk also, I know that you are not afraid to express, you know, negative thoughts, anger, anguish, grief, sadness, you know, all these things that we we want to hide under the rug and we want everything to be nice and, and especially, let's call it new age thought, <laughs> where where we say feel the fear and do it anyway or, or don't... Um, don't think any negative thoughts because you'll attract more. So I know that you have something to say about that. Oh, I think that the whole business around the secret was one of the most disastrous uh, energies put out in the into the world. You know, when you don't let... Let me make a disclaimer. I'm not saying blow up at people and dump your feelings on people. I think it's really important to create your own safe container away from other people and in a space that's safe for you to move the energy of your anger, to move the energy of your grief or your rage or your upset. But there's an energy in all of those emotions. And if we say, oh, I can't feel that, that's going to draw more of that to us, what we do is we bury it in our bodies and in our psyches. And that takes more and more energy to keep that contained. And that doesn't work ultimately. That makes us sick and makes us crazy. Is it like a pressure cooker that doesn't have a little release? I think that's the truth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and there is really no harm in feeling your feelings. I, I, there's a story in the book that one of the most compelling experiences I ever had, I'm going to try to shorten it. I was walking, I was walking in the airport in San Francisco trying to get to the restroom. And as I walked, there was this screaming, loud, unbelievable, obviously a child having a tantrum. And as I walked the length of the airport to the restroom, People were making the most judgment. Everybody was shaking their heads like, who is this parent that's allowing this child to be so disruptive? And as I came around the corner, there was a woman leaning her elbow on the backstop of the escalator, and she had a bunch of bags around her on the floor, and there was this little creature and that ultimately I think was a girl 
on the floor, kicking and banging and screaming bloody murder. And everybody was walking by making these horrible judgmental faces. And this woman was just had her chin in her hand and she was just watching this child with total equanimity and even love. And as I passed them, the child suddenly stopped like somebody had thrown a switch and looked up under her eyebrows to her mom. And her mom looked down to her and said, are you done? And she shook her head sort of sheepishly, yes. And I passed on and I went to the restroom, into one of the stalls. And while I was in the restroom, I thought, can you imagine what a world would be like if each of us was allowed to learn that when you have a feeling, it has a trajectory. It builds to a certain crescendo and then it decays. And that if you're allowed to feel a feeling all the way through, it naturally ends, I mean, at least for that time. So when I came out of the stall, the woman was diapering this child, and I said, you know, I just have to tell you, this was a luminous experience for me, to watch you allow your child to be when everybody else was being so judgmental all and shooting daggers at you. And she looked at me and she said, well, what else is there to do? It was unbelievable. Just imagine if we each can be making a space as a safe mommy to let the part of us rant and rave and cry and moan and be whatever we're being, that we would learn that there's nothing to be afraid of. And what's so important about that, I'm so glad you told that story because it really popped out for me. And... uh, What's important to know, that's a way we can be with our friends, and it's about not being afraid for them. And if they're in terrible grief, you know, over something, uh, I know you really advise us not to go and interfere with that. So, uh, I'm so glad. You know, that's one of the biggest things is that we always think we have to fix each other, that if somebody is feeling despondent or angry or upset, that the thing that we have to do is do something that we don't understand that sitting in witness, that just compassionately being with somebody while they're feeling their feelings is the greatest gift we can give. I'm here with Dr. Robin Posen, and she spells her name R-O-B-Y-N. Posen, P as in Peter, O-S-I-N, Robin Posen. And you can uh, find out more about her work by going to her website, ForTheLittleOnesInside.com, or you can go to CompassionateInc.com, and Inc is I-N-K, CompassionateInc.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. Robin Posen, and she's the author of Go Only As Fast As Your Slowest Part Feels Safe to Go. Robin, we were talking about witnessing one another and and really allowing those deep feelings that our society might call negative feelings. I, I think you say we're we're what did you call it in your book? Something about uh, we're adverse. Oh, we're, we're emotion phobic or we're dark phobic. Dark phobic. Any any kind of thing that we would say is dark emotion. We kind of like anything other than sweetness and light and bliss and joy. Yes. <laughs> there we go. So you say that that being with one another, and it's your experience to be with one another and witness that in some safe container, uh, some transformation can take place rather than going in and fixing it and cutting off the emotion. Absolutely. You know, I think the thing is that when we when we get involved in trying to help somebody out, I remember in the circle, this was a big issue that I had with when I was being in my little person and my mommy was with my little person and everybody thought that I needed something from them and I was, I was hysterical about leave me alone. You know that what happens when people are trying to fix you or make it better is they're really trying to get you out of your feelings because your feelings are disrupting or disturbing them, that your feelings are being like a tuning fork that's resonating anything similar in them that they don't want to feel. So what looks like it's very altruistic, that is they're only trying to help you, what they're really trying to do is get you out of that place that's uncomfortable for For them. And the only things that they can tell you about what to do or what they would do in that situation, which may have absolutely nothing to do with what would be right for what you need to do. And it's distracting and disturbing, and it takes you out of where you are to try to, given that we're all trained to be such nurturers, to make them feel okay about trying to help you when what you really need to do is just tell them to shut up and let you, you know, if, yeah. if it's too hard for them to be with what you're feeling, that it's okay to ask them not to be with you. Right. I, I'm thinking um, what I've learned from this is, let's say we're sitting in circle with friends and someone is crying. And in one of those deep, deep cries that that just you can feel it coming from their soul they're maybe just burst into tears and i think our normal reaction is to go and comfort them and what i've learned from your demonstrating this through the years that i've known you is to leave them alone but hold them psychically so to speak just hold them and know that they are doing exactly what they need to do and be grateful for them, that they are reaching this place that they can be so vulnerable with me to to be there. I mean, isn't that part of it? That is so the truth. You know, that that I can remember years, early years in, in my practice, that when somebody would be crying, I would move to be in physical touch. And then when I discovered 
that part of me that being in physical touch gets to feel like you have to hurry up and get through this because how long will they be able to tolerate you being that? And what happens is that kind of caretaking from the outside robs us of the chance to develop the strength to hold it for ourselves. And so when I, and it's also how I can work on the phone with people who are in really dire emotional places is I just make sort of, mm, oh, sounds, you know, that just are a reflection of my feeling with them, but I'm not trying to stop them. I remember one time, and I may have mentioned this on New Dimensions before. If I have, I apologize to our listeners, but being on the phone with one of my circle brothers, and it was at a time in my life that was just huge change, and I didn't realize it was affecting me so deeply emotionally. And I called my circle brother, and and he answered the phone, Jody answered the phone, and I just burst into tears. I just started crying, and I cried, and I cried, and I cried. And I was so grateful. My circle brother, my chosen brother, I would say, just sat on the mm-hmm. other end of that phone, totally loving me, not not just doing exactly what you said. And, you know, that happened 30 years ago. Wow. Something transformed inside of me because he was willing to just witness it and not try and fix me. And he just, with compassion and understanding, he allowed me to just cry my cry. Such a gift. It is such a gift. Mm-hmm. So I, I hope that I can give that to others and be, to be allow them that for themselves because it was such a gift to me. You know, the thing is, the more we allow ourselves to be there for ourselves in all of these places that New Age flim-flam tells us are not good to be, what happens is that then we can be there in the way your circle brother was because we're not afraid of the resonance, the stirring up inside of us because we feel safe with having those feelings stirred in us so we can feel safe having somebody have their feelings. Beautiful. Robin, what do you mean by um, belly wisdom? You mentioned belly wisdom, and you've mentioned it on the program and also in your book. I think that's like when I say about scanning, that you, your mind can make up this, use the same data and make up 16 different stories that will justify any behavior or rationalize anything that's happening to you. But if you check in with your body for any signs, like I mean, how, how I didn't listen to that backache when I started the journey, is that your body will always tell you the truth. That if you notice where in your body there's tension or tightness or nausea or discomfort, that your body is always... The body is really connected with that original child, that un, that unenculturated um, child, so that your body will tell you if it's not okay, but you have to listen and you have to not override. And I, I can remember being in dialogue with a for, 
at even then a former partner that I was still struggling with and we would be talking and I would I would just be a mess and then suddenly I'd find myself in the bathroom <laughs> it's like <laughs> my body carried me away from the toxicity yes. Right. That I didn't even decide to do it. I wasn't, you know, that I was just putting up with the tension in my body, but my body just at that point took me out of the room. One of the cards that you have from your uh, rememberings and celebrations cards, which are just, just dynamite, they're just wonderful. I highly recommend them. Uh, and one of the cards says, feeling when we're feeling the stuck times. When we're in that in-between place, we know we can't go back to the way it was, but we don't yet see how it's going to be. Well, I think what happens is that we beat ourselves up tremendously during those times because very often in the stuck time, what you're doing is you're watching yourself play out behavior that you know is going to lead you down to something that you don't want to be in, but you you can't stop it yet. So what I always say is when you notice that, when you notice that you're doing something that you know doesn't work anymore, but you don't know what else to do, that just watching the dance, being a witness to your own behavior, noticing what triggered it, noticing you know, all of the steps in the twists and turns that carry you through that and being loving and compassionate and tender with the self that you are in this limbo place, that the in-between place is one of the most excruciating and devastating places. And it's one that generates an awful lot of judgment and impatience. And the thing is, if you can notice when you're in in-between places and stop and be there for yourself to say, you know, this is an in-between time. I can't be where I need to be and I, I can't be where I used to be. And it's very scary and it's very shaky. And what I need to do is slow way down and be as kind and gentle with myself. Because in those places, we're like skinless. We've shed, the skin that we used to live in has gotten too small. So like a snake, we've burst out of it, but we're still not gelled in the new place. And so you want to be incredibly careful and incredibly delicate and gentle with you. A oh, rest is a courage. Rest. rest is a sacred act that, that takes courage and persistence in this crazy world. You know that we see rest as something that has no value. And the truth is taking time out of time, taking these rests really lets the deeper parts of you take over. Thank you so much for being with us today, Robin. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Justine. I've been here with Dr. Robin Posen. She spells her name R-O-B-Y-N. Posen, P is in Peter, O-S-I-N. And she's the author of Go Only As Fast As Your Slowest Part Feels Safe to Go. And to be in touch with her, you can go to her website, which is forthelittleonesinside.com or CompassionateInc.com, and Inc, I-N-K, CompassionateInc.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. 
I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3474. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio and Media in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Please visit us at newdimensions.org, where you can find nearly a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our archive and many other resources. That's newdimensions.org. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. Since 1973, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge of culture, the arts, science, health, psychology, spirituality, and a host of other fields. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drazen. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer, supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, and thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, to become a member of Friends of New Dimensions, or to purchase downloadable copies of this and many other New Dimensions programs, visit our website, newdimensions.org. Or you can reach us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.